How are we doing? Great, great. Oh my goodness. Well, Bob Dylan was right. Can you imagine that? He was right when he said the times are a changing. Remember that song? Anthem from about the, the 1960s, about 64 or so, I think. Anybody remember that? You don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> I was just a twinkle in God's eye during the time. Uh, but a big anthem of the time. A lot of change was happening then. A lot of change is happening now. I, I looked at some of the lyrics of this. Uh, I keep a little Bob Dylan on my playlist. Uh, if anybody else does, it's okay. Uh, he says stuff like this in this, the times are changing, this anthem that went around the, the country. If your, time, uh, if your time to you is worth saving, you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. For the wheels still spin and there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now will later win for the times they are changing. This is, this is where he presses in. Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside is raging. Feels like the battle's raging. We'll soon shake your windows, the rattle your walls, for the times they are changing. Come, mothers and fathers, speaks to the family throughout the land. And don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are a-changing. Whew. Sounds like that's going on right now, right? A little push against family. This is the anthem now, and it's a lot of those words, those phrases speak to what's going on today, kind of the anthems of our day and, and the times they are a-changing, right? We feel it. We feel it. I think no matter how hard we press against it, it's still going to happen. This is just the, the way the world works. It goes in cycles, and it goes in flows, and it goes up and down. And I believe Solomon, when he writes that there is nothing new under the sun, feels new to us because we're sitting in this moment, and maybe we've not experienced anything like this before, but there's nothing new under the sun. Times change. The world changes. What may surprise us, though, is at the rapid pace that we experience it right here and right now. It just seems like it's going quick. It's going so fast. And that may be the surprise. We may have lived in a time and, and during our lives where you thought, you know, I'm kind of handling this. It's just kind of flowing and the changes happen. It's incremental and just, you know, it's, it's builds, it builds, it builds. And then, you know, it looks different. But now it's just like, man, it just looks different. Tomorrow it's going to look different, right? We're going to turn on the news and it's going to be a different message and some new little piece that we're supposed to be interested in and, and that's supposed to affect our lives or, or change our lives, and it comes very quickly. One of, the, one of the maybe surprising changes that has come at such a rapid pace, and this affects us, is the, the rapid pace at which people are dropping the church. Have you seen that? Have you thought about that? Have you maybe experienced that in your, in your own circles, the, the rate at which people are dropping the church? There's a new group in town, an influential group in town called the nuns, and they don't worship down the street at the cathedral down the street. This is a group of people who, as they get a form or they're doing a checklist or a census, they're the group of people who check off, you know, no religious affiliation, Right? 
We see those boxes, and what do we check off? Usually Protestant or something like that, or something denominational that we check off. Uh, this group is, is on the rise. There's actually a book that just came out a couple of years ago called The Rise of the Nuns by James Emery White. It's a, not, a, a group that, that claims no religion or a religious affiliation, no preference to what we would think as religious activities or engaging in fellowship like this. And they're on the rise in America. And there are some people who are freaked out by this. What's going to happen to our country? There's some people who are applauding this. Finally, sense and sensibility are coming into our nation, and we're going to get rid of all this, this hocus-pocus stuff. There, there's some people who are applauding it. There's some people who are sitting here, standing here, and I'm kind of hoping this, this is us. That it's like no matter what happens, it doesn't affect the mission that Jesus has given us, right? Whether we feel people are on our side or not on our side, it does not affect the calling and the mission that Jesus has brought to us. 23% of the adults in America now consider, consider themselves nuns. That's almost a quarter. It's almost a quarter of America. Uh, about five, six years ago, about six years ago now, it was 16%. So even in that little short period of time, it's ramped up uh, to almost a quarter of Americans. 36 million Americans would put themselves into this category this self-identity of, of the nuns. They tend to be younger than other people in the country, but they're the fastest-growing group, especially among millennials. 30%, 36% of millennials would put themselves into this category. But what's interesting is that the studies say that 61% of them, so you think a quarter of America that is just getting rid of religion, that's basically the statement. We're getting rid of religious preferences, but 61% of that group say that they believe in a higher power. So they're not, they're not just giving everything up. There's still a, a sense of spirituality there. They just don't think that religion and religious practices are important. In fact, they're not atheists. They're not atheists. Only 3% would consider themselves just straight out atheists. And maybe we know people like this. Maybe there may be a few of us in here this morning who are questioning our faith, and ah, does it really, really even matter? Uh, you know, this church stuff, getting involved in stuff like this, believing all, all of this, does it really matter? Because there's so much else out in this world to, to consider. So we may have, I, I would say, if there's a quarter of the people in America are self-identifying as th this category and this group, then I would say, yes, they are out there in our neighborhoods. They are around us. They are our friends and their, our neighbors. They are our friends and our neighbors and our family. And they, this group, like I said, they're, they're uh, the spiritual group. A large portion of them say, yeah, there's a higher power. In fact, they love people like Jesus. They love to go to the Sermon on the Mount and places like that, and they admire him, but they don't consider him Lord. They wouldn't consider him their friend. Who did Jesus come to, to save, to be friends with? The, the sinners, the, the people who are who are left on the outside. They wouldn't consider him as Lord or their friend. And so we live in a very mixed bag uh, of, of beliefs right now. There's a mixed bag of beliefs. I would say, man, we are just getting closer and closer to experiencing 
what Jesus and his followers would have been experiencing during this first century, just this mixed bag of religion and religious beliefs and your preference, your belief, whatever your little town, your deity, your God, whatever your, your, your uh, sense of connection with the greater universe, that's, that's up to you. In fact, the, uh, the quote from one of the commentaries I was looking at said this, for every person who gets excuse me, for every person who goes from, being, uh, from not being religious to becoming a Christian, so those who actually accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, there are four people who say they grew up in a Christian home but are not now religious. So look at the shift that would be happening in our culture with that kind of stat if that continues. So let's say this group of people here just came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we're happy for them. We welcome them into the family but this means the rest of this group here attended church before, had a religious background, and this, these sections here said, no, this is not for me anymore. That's the shift that we would be experiencing in this country, in our, in our nation. In the next, and like I said, uh, this, this group of folks who's on the rise, they, they, they love people like Jesus, and, and looking specifically at when he's talking about love and accepting everyone and all that kind of stuff, and, and they like the, the Sermon on the Mount and, and those teachings about how he's here for people and how he should be good to people and all that kind of stuff, and which, are, which are teachings of Jesus, but there's not a draw to Jesus as their Savior, their Lord, and their friend. This is where we have good news. I mean, this is, this is where we're carrying great news for the community around us. In chapter 7, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. For the next couple weeks, there are five scenes in Jesus's life as he's interacting with a, a different, different groups of people. And we're going to see him interacting with different groups of people. And, and uh, today we're going to look at a scene of Jesus interacting with, with a very, in very humbling circumstances. He's responding to a request made by faith by a very humble man. We're going to see today how Jesus has compassion for a military leader's servant. A military leader's servant. And so let me read this for us this morning as we get into uh, the text. When he had concluded saying all, these, all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Verse 6, Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion friend <laughs> sent friends to tell him, Lord... Don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Verse 8, For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant 
in good health. Now we would, as we go into this and, and uh, as we read the first couple of verses, we see that, um, yeah, there's someone sick and what do we know Jesus is going to do? When we see in the gospel someone sick, <laughs> he's going to go there and, and take care of the problem uh, for him. And so the, these next interactions, starting today, these next interactions are going to see Jesus' response to people and their response to Jesus as well, and their recognition of, of Jesus and, and who he is who he is. He is the one who truly holds all things in his hand, holds all things together for us. We're also going to see a Jesus who has a love for those who are outside of what we would say are God's people, outside of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is going to show a deep love for those who are outside, outside of this group. And Luke is again reminding us here that God has plans for the world. God's plans stretch across the world. And again, Luke is a Gentile, a Gentile believer, and so he's written a, a gospel message that speaks uh, to God's people, but also to the Gentile world outside of the nation of Israel. And here we have in the first couple of verses, as we dive into this passage, first couple of verses say this, "...when he had concluded saying all of this to the people who were listening..." I look at that and I was like, are the people who are still listening? Maybe that's pastor's joke. Uh, He entered Capernaum. uh, And verse number two, a centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. And so here we start to see the characters unfolding in this story. Who is Jesus going to have compassion on this time? Much like the the rest of the world, of course, Jesus' hometown was run by Roman rule. So he's entering Capernaum, he's going back to his home base, uh, this sort of the home base for his ministry, and uh, here we have a centurion is called out, and he would have been a ruler who would have been about, uh, over about 100 different soldiers, and would have had charge of that, that area, and what goes on in that area would have had a lot of respect, a lot of command, he would have had a lot of authority on what is going on in the villages and the towns in that area. And so this guy, this guy, is he a friend? of the community? Is he supposed to be a friend of the community? No, he's not supposed to be a friend of the community. We're going to see, we're going to see the, the Jewish leader's uh, response to this man, uh, but, but this guy is on the other side. Um, he has a lot of power in this, this little community, and he's got a, a servant who is sick. Now, the story doesn't give us any information on this servant's status or position or why he came into being a servant or how he got there. A lot of speculation goes on about who he was and how important he was and what kind of relationship he had with the centurion. But none of that's really fleshed out here. It's just that the centurion, this guy in authority, had this servant, had this worker, and he valued him highly. He loved this man. He loved this man and had a a good, close relationship with him. This gets really interesting here. It's really interesting in verse 3, it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting to have him come and save the life of his servant. The centurion has only heard about Jesus. There's no indication here that he's actually seen Jesus' work or seen him perform miracles or he, sitting on the side. I don't find, think we find this guy sitting on the side of the mountain listening to the Sermon on the Mount. It said, the text says, when he heard about Jesus, when he heard the testimony starting to flow, this is the importance of testimony here, 
in our testimonies and how we're sharing with our community. When this guy heard the testimonies of his community, he knew he had to find this man, Jesus. He only knew him by reputation. He only knew Jesus by his reputation. He'd never heard him speak. He had never met him. This man was really literally stepping out in faith, as 2 Corinthians says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This is what this guy is doing, stepping out in faith to approach this man, Jesus, who he has heard so much about. And he gets a group of religious leaders to go ask Jesus a favor. Why? Why would he have to do that? Why would he feel the need to do that, to go and approach some Jewish elders and and ask the favor that, hey, can you, can you guys go and invite Jesus in? Why, why, do you, why would he need to do that? Can, why, why couldn't he do that himself? That's right. The Jews and the Gentiles don't exactly mix. It's interesting. Matthew tells the same story, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew uh, has a, a much more concise picture, uh, a s- telling of this story. Luke gives more details about this story. Uh, Matthew shows the centurion actually going out and approaching Jesus himself, where Luke says, Luke adds the details of, no, these, these leaders are going to go out, and then later we're going to see some other people go out, and the centurion has a very humble position, and I think there is a sense like, you know what, I know your rules, I know what the law says. I know how you would look at me, so I'm going to go send some folks who are like you to come and ask the favor that I want to ask. He may have thought that if Jesus is actually a good teacher, a good Jewish teacher, he may not have anything to do with me if I would go and approach him like this myself. And so Luke tells us these details that he sent out these Jewish elders to go and request but he's request, request. He's, there's no force here. Think of it as we see the story. There's no, there's no force. Think about who he is, a military commander, over 100 soldiers, over this providence, over, you know, over this, this land, over these towns. There, there's not a lot of forcing going on here, which actually could have been the way to actually do this if he's looking at his, his position and his power. And these Jewish elders... I think, that, I think Luke makes a distinction here between Jewish elders and what we consider the religious leaders as he's talking because translation says these Jewish elders go out in verse 4 and they reach Jesus and they plead with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So they, they agree. They agree. Okay, yep. We know who you are. Alludes to the te- We like you. <laughs> We're going to go out and find Jesus for you and tell him, we're going to plead with him to come in and actually come and heal your servant. They're going to tell Jesus, hey, this guy is worthy. This guy is worthy. He loves our nation. He's built us a synagogue, this beautiful synagogue. He's gone and built this for us. He's worthy of this, this healing. He's, he's on the approved list. He's on the approved list. Now, what's very interesting, as Luke is telling the story, A chapter before, in verse 27, when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say about loving and serving our community? Jesus says, don't just love and serve the ones who have given to you or the ones who have loved you back or shown love to you. I think there's a connection here. I think there's a connection. I think think Jesus gives the words... 
Jesus preaches the message, and then Luke, Luke, in his way of writing this, actually says, and this is the way it always comes about, right? We, we get set in our ways, because what are they doing? They're saying, he's on our approved list. He actually loves our community because he's built us this nice, beautiful sanctuary to worship in, to, to, to do our, our religious activities in. We, we approve of this guy, and so therefore, Jesus, yeah, you got to come and show him the favor. You got to come and show him the favor because he's checked off all of our boxes. Now, I think this is, you know, we get Matthew and we get Luke and they tell a little bit different version of the story where Matthew says that the centurion actually comes to Jesus himself, approaches Jesus himself and makes this request. And, and what does Jesus do? We're going to see in this passage, he's going to go with the religious leaders. Of course, he's going to go with his religious leaders. He has compassion on this family. In Matthew, the direct contact between the centurion, Jesus goes with the centurion. Jesus is not going to play favorites. Jesus is not going to turn away this man's request. He's going to go with him even though he is outside of this family. He is outside of this family. I just, I think it's interesting as we look at this and look and see how those, those leaders approached Jesus and they kind of checked off all those boxes that Jesus had just talked about as he was on the hill preaching the sermon, right? They come, he's worthy because of this. He's done this. I really hope that we as a church never find ourselves in a position as those doors are open or people are coming through and, and we get approached and say, oh, this person is worthy of our time because they've checked off this box. This is not the way of the church. This is not the way of our church, our family. You know, hey, Jesus' arms are wide open. Our doors are wide, wide open for anybody to come and experience his love because Jesus does not play favorites. He's going to show great compassion on this family who is outside, outside of God's family. And the centurion here comes in, in great humility before Jesus. This is so interesting, so interesting. This man of power and status and prestige, how he approaches Jesus. Jesus went with them in verse 6. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him. Here's another layer. Here's another layer. Sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am uh, not worthy to have you come under my roof. I, again, there's, there's a cultural understanding here of the reality of what's going on in the world around him. Right? You, you, Jesus, I know you're not supposed to step through my door. Right? This is, this is Peter when, he's, he, Jesus tell, when Jesus has that, gives him that vision, God gives him that vision and tells him in the books of Acts to, go, hey, go, go find Cornelius and, and eat all his food and, and, and go fellowship with him in his house. And Peter's like, oh my gosh, I can't even step through the door of that house. But he does. He goes as he's had this vision from the Lord. This is the culture. This is the time. We are supposed to be separate. We're supposed to be on opposite sides. So, I recognize that, Jesus, and I'm going to send these friends out there. Stop you where you are, because I know I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. So I'm not even going to push myself on you to do this. That's why, in verse 7, that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But 
Say the word. Say the word. And this, this is where he shows his faith. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. He recognizes something in Jesus, that Jesus' words have power. There's power that comes from Jesus, and when he speaks, and when he acts, and what he is trying to do here on this earth. The story would go for most other Roman rulers that there would be cruelty and brutality. I imagine this guy that, you know, he, he's got the authority. He could go out and he sees Jesus. He's heard about Jesus on the hill and he's heard about the teaching. He's heard about the healings. And he could go out and say, you know what? I'm going to go snatch you. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to drag you in. I don't care what it takes. This is who I am. This is the power that I have. And I'm going to take it and force you to work and heal and do this, this service for me. This, this is basically what the religious leaders do, what we see Herod doing later on in the Gospels. They have Jesus standing before him and, hey, perform the sign. Before, you're here. We got you here. We have you captive. Perform those signs. Perform those signs. And we're going to see a huge contrast between what we see for, with God's people the ones who are supposed to be keeping their eyes out for Jesus and how they respond, hey, perform those miracles, perform those signs. And this man says, I know who you are. I've heard the stories. I've heard about the power. I've heard about your healings. I've heard testimony of what you are doing for other people. I want to request that you would come and and grace me with your presence. But I know this is the position that we're in. I know this is what culture expects of us to keep a distance. And so I'm just asking for your grace and I'm not even worthy to receive it. Not worthy to receive it. Instead of ordering Jesus, he's inviting him in. Instead of coming with this, this, this agenda based on power and position, he bows a knee and he says, Jesus, I'm welcoming you in. I'm welcoming you in. Will you come in? Will you grace us? With your presence. And so we hear, we see this, this loving and compassionate and, and humble man, and a man that uh, thinks highly of love. He, he loves his servant. He values his servant. He actually loves his subjects, the community that he's been placed in. He, he loves them. He's, he's served them. He's, he's built them a, 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 a um, synagogue. And he actually loved and acknowledges authority. He's, he, he's one who has experienced authority. He, he reports down from people, and he has people reporting up from him, and he knows what authority in a, a command chain, a command structure looks like. He, he says this in, in verse 8, For I, too, am a man placed under authority. I, I report to Caesar. Anything Caesar wants, I do. But I also have people who are under my command. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. And I recognize who you are. You too, Jesus, are under authority, under God the Father's authority to come and change the world. And I want to invite that and experience that, that grace. He loves a lot, but the one thing we see that he doesn't do is he doesn't love himself in the sense that he's coming with humility. He's not propping himself up first. He's not loving his position, his place over Jesus. He approaches Jesus with humility. It's interesting that this sinner, this, this is, he's a Gentile, classified as sinner. 
in the scriptures, right? That's, that's, who they, that's who they are. That's who we are classified as. We are sinners, this, this outsider, this sinner who's already living out the most important commands that, that Jesus would give later on in his ministry to have love for those around you. He's already living that out. He's living out Philippians 2, 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existed in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or grasped or taken. And here we have the centurion who is, who is stepping up to God and saying, oh, you know, please, I want to invite you in. I'm not going to grab anything from you. I'm not going to force anything out of you. I'm not going to take anything because I have an agenda. Instead, this is how the man is walking in in the example of Jesus. Instead, he emptied himself, and this is talking about Jesus. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. This is what this man's doing. Jesus, I will be your servant in position, in recognition of who you are versus who I am. I will be your servant humbling himself. So we're going, to see, we're going to see the contrast of beliefs between those who are in God's family and are looking out for the Messiah and those who are actually recognizing who Jesus is. And a lot of times they're the outsiders. A lot of times they're the outsiders. And, and he recognizes that, Jesus, your word has power. Just say the word. Just say the word. You don't even have to come into my house. Just say the word. And I know that my servant will be healed. He's recognizing that this this word, this power, God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and he recognizes the power of Jesus' words and they they hold power of, of life. They hold power over life. And if you just, Jesus, if you just speak the word, I know that my, ser- my servant will be healed. Do you believe in the power of the word of God? Amen. Do we believe in the power of the word of God? We have, we have the written word here that's been given to us and passed down, and there's power in this word, and this is why we meditate on it, and this is why we study it. But Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's word here on this earth. The word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And this man, he didn't go do a, a Bible study then to recognize who Jesus was. He, he heard the word of testimony from those around him about who Jesus was and the power that Jesus had. And he recognized that God's Word had become flesh and that therefore he has power over life and over death. This is where the servant's heading, death. And I recognize my position, he says. I recognize my position. I recognize your position. And you are the one who has the power, grace, and truth. (laughs) Verse 9. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. Jesus is amazed. How do you amaze God? I mean, how how, how do we even comprehend that? How How do we amaze God? Two times in the Gospels, it says that Jesus is amazed. Here, and then another position, another place. In Mark 6, he was amazed. Jesus is amazed again. Jesus is amazed at their unbelief, at their, their, their lack of belief, their, their lack of faith. And he was going around the villages 
teaching. Here he's amazed at this man's faith and belief. And the other time that Jesus is amazed is the lack of belief, their unbelief in his hometown of Nazareth. And so here we come, this, this humble servant comes with faith, humble, humble faith, and Jesus is amazed. And he, he says, I, I tell you, he turns to the crowd in, in this verse, and he says, I tell you the truth, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. This is what amazes Jesus. Now, faith, faith is putting our complete trust or confidence in someone or something, right? Many of us here have put our trust and confidence in Christ Jesus as our Lord. And this faith, faith comes with no agenda, right? Faith comes with no agenda. Faith is taking the the testimony that we've seen about someone or something, and we're putting our trust in that. Faith comes with no agenda. When, when, he, when we get our agendas involved, then we start to screw this thing up, right? We start to say that, hey, Jesus, I have faith in you, but I still want to drive the car and, and have you sit by my side. And it's that, that bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. I, we, we flipped it. Jesus doesn't sit in the co-pilot seat. Jesus sits in the driver's seat, and we are along for the ride with Jesus because God is the one with the plans and purposes for us and for this earth. God is the one who has put us here at this time. I think this is why this man is coming with humble faith. Jesus, I don't even know if you're going to step through my door. I don't know if you're going to turn me away. This, this, this centurion, I don't know if you're going to turn me away. I don't know if you're going to dismiss me. I don't know if you can say, well, you get your act together. You go through the temple system, and you maybe get yourself circumcised, and you follow all those rules and regulations. Then we'll talk about what it means to save your servant. This, this, is, this is what the Roman centurion is thinking, right? And, he, and he's, he says, I know the distance. I know the boundaries, I know the sin that is in between us, but Jesus, I come with my bended knee in faith, knowing who you are, knowing who you are. He puts his agenda to the side, his position, his power. He puts it all to the side and says, I know who you are, Jesus. I know who you are. He's like the sinner who says, and Jesus, I know that you know who I am as well, and I know that's why you may not approach me because I don't feel worthy, I'm a sinner, I'm outside the camp, I'm outside the circle, but Jesus walks into that situation. Jesus walks into that situation. Like Hebrews says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. He had not seen Jesus, but he knew who Jesus was by the testimony. The reality for him is that Jesus, I know you are the life. We know now on the other side of this that Jesus is the life, Through his death and resurrection, we have promises that come from that. Promises of life, promises of a new beginning, promises of restoration. This is the reality that is presented right before us with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is proof of who the unseen, the the invisible God is. Jesus stands before us as proof of who the invisible God is. And faith is looking at Jesus and and taking him as he is and putting our hopes in him and not ourselves. The opposite of humble faith. This man is just so, he walks in humility before Jesus. He knows how to command. He knows how to command people. But before Jesus, he walks in humility saying, I'm going to take you as you are. The opposite of humble faith is I will call a prideful agenda. Humble faith says, Jesus, do what you will do. 
an agenda, a prideful agenda says, Jesus, do what I tell you to do. What is this man doing? Jesus, I'm inviting you in to do what you will do. And faith, faith is really broken when we place our demands on Jesus. And we live in a demanding culture. Man, everybody around us, even, even us, we're, we're all demanding people, right? It's ramping up high, higher and higher, more, more and more. And so we see these groups of people out there who are dismissing some of the stuff that's happening in churches. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. I like this idea of Jesus, but all this other stuff that, that comes with extra baggage and, and I've been hurt in the past, whatever, I, I'm going to give up on that. We see people who preach the faithfulness of God, and at the same time, they, they fail and they fall in their own faithfulness. I'm tired of seeing that. I'm tired of hearing those stories, and we heard more of them this week. More people, more leaders falling in their faithfulness, but while standing there for so long saying, oh, God is so faithful, and then, and then collapsing. Because there's pride and there's agenda behind a lot of what we do. We like to take that driver's seat. We like to take that wheel. We need to move Jesus and say, Jesus, you are actually the one who has control in this. And so there is, there is some doubt, some valid doubt about the stories that we tell and the lives that we live in the testimony that we give, and we need to address that. We need to acknowledge that. And again, come humbly before Jesus. Jesus, again, it comes back to your agenda, your purpose, your plan, without me trying to insert something into the midst of that and try to force something. That's pride, and it has devastating effects. It's, it's destroyed churches. It continues to destroy churches. It destroys nations. We see pride destroying a couple of nations right now, right? What's happening? It's all pride. Vanity and pride. We're fighting a war. We're not fighting it yet, but there's a war out there because of vanity and pride. It's destroying nations, and it's destroying people. And this guy on the outside says, Jesus, I've... I heard you who you are. I've heard the testimonies about you, and I just want to experience that grace. I want to experience that love from you. And Jesus says, he heard this. He was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. That there is a powerful statement. That there is a very, very powerful statement. The ones who have should have recognized who Jesus was, they, they don't. We see the one who has faith in this story, in this situation, is on the outside. And we see who's blessed in this situation, the one who's on the outside, the, the sinner. The sinner who actually acknowledges, Jesus, you are Lord, I am not. Please, will you come? Will you come into my house? Will you come into my house? And Jesus shows us in this story, in this example, how he cares for all of our needs, he cares for all of our needs. A lowly servant in a Roman household. And Jesus says, yeah, that man has value. He is made in the image of God. That man has value. He has needs. This man has needs. I'm going to take care of the needs of this family. And he brings healing. He shows that his kingdom has its arms wide open, and he's here to make all things new and restore all that is broken. All that's broken. And he, in, this, in this story, he proves that he is a Messiah and a Savior for all. 
He is Messiah, Messiah and Savior for all. Bob Dylan says the times are a-changing. In this time of changing, may we see that God is clearly, clearly widening the fields that are ready for harvest. There are more and more fields that are ready for harvest. We kind of thought, hey, we, we, we plowed and we pulled all the harvest. We, we kinda, I think we kind of thought that as a church. Hey, we've got this covered. It's all the people on the outside that, you know, the other countries, the other places, and God is showing us, no, 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 no. There are still plenty of fields right around you to harvest. Harvest, ready, ready to harvest. And so maybe instead of despair, we see this as opportunity. We, we never know who's going to show up in faith like the centurion, right? We never know who may walk through these doors with this kind of faith or who may enter into our house with that kind of faith and hope and questions. And there's a world full of people and it's getting bigger and bigger, who haven't recognized Jesus as their Lord and Savior. More and more in our towns and our cities, for various reasons, their own pride, uncertainty, they haven't seen a clear picture of who Jesus is, unawareness, they've never heard of Jesus, whatever it may be, the fields are getting larger. And we know that every, uh, every knee will bow, and every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not a theory. We see it in the scriptures. It's going to come to pass. We want to invite everybody in before that end time to come and actually kneel before Jesus and accept them as their Savior. I think we see a little glimpse on how Jesus does evangelism here. He's made aware of a need. He recognizes a need. He goes and addresses the need, a very physical need. And then he says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like when we take care of these kind of needs. And so our job is each and every day we recognize the grace and the life that, that Jesus has offered us. Each and every day we, we come in faith like the humble centurion who didn't make much of himself, but he made much of Jesus, right? He made a lot. He made a big deal about Jesus. I'm not worthy. I know who you are. I've heard about you. I'm sending out the right people so that maybe you will come and approach me. Jesus, I know who you are. And he humbled himself. And every day we can allow Jesus to work as, as he will work, not with our agenda and our purposes, but with God's greater purpose. And in doing so, we will set ourselves up to be used by God in the lives of those who need to experience the good news that Jesus has has come to bring. Let's go to prayer over this. And while we're doing this, if you have some kiddos in Mission Discovery, I would invite you to go and uh, grab them and invite them back in because we're going to do communion together as a family. And, and Jesus, we, we do come and, and we thank you for your example. We thank you for the example of, of one, a Savior who, who doesn't turn anybody away. We thank you for the reminder of, by the centurion that you are God, you are our Lord. You are the one who does have power in, in your word to come and make change. And so often we get caught up trying to make change on our own, with our own power like I said, with our own agenda. But Lord Jesus, we need to come in line with you. 
come aligned with your plan and your purposes and your desires. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in that, give us grace in that. Show us the way to, to walk in our community humbly, calling out your name and serving you. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite the men to come forward, and they're going to pass out the, the trays, the elements. Please grab one as they pass it out to you. I'm going to grab one as well. The Apostle Paul writes this about communion and the communion experience in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, since all of us share in the one bread. In chapter 11, he says this, And when he, gave, he had given thanks, when Jesus had given thanks at that last supper, he, he broke the bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As the band's going to lead us into a song, they're also going to lead us into taking the elements. And so watch for the cues on taking the bread and the cup together. But before we... Uh, go into that next song of worship. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we give you praise for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Just as we unite around the bread and the cup, we ask that you would unite our hearts and minds together so that we can best live out your example to the world around us. It is only through your grace, mercy, and strength that we can do this. And we come united, Jesus, in your name today. Amen.